Uh, the title of the talk is Utterly Ordinary. Utterly Ordinary. <clears throat> and I want to um, just bring us back to this afternoon when we broke silence. And uh, there's often a, a beautiful expression of the warmth of heart and uh, the connectedness between people when there's the first uh, movement towards words. <clears throat> we're so, uh, we're so um, quiet inside. <clears throat> and uh, the work of just being with and present to ourselves has its expression in interaction and communication. It's beautiful to watch because you can see the, the delight of the uh, interpersonal connection. It reminds me of these uh, Zen paintings where you have a huge mountain and a little valley and three people, very small, talking and speaking together and they're, they're in the joys of laughing together. And it's wonderful to see. And if you watch communication, I think you can find something very... Um, interesting and insightful about it because oftentimes there is a place where that warmth of heart um, diverts towards uh, self-affirmation or self-validation. And it's a very interesting point to be aware of. Not that it doesn't happen to all of us and over time it's a very important part of the whole unfolding of our lives and being and seeing how the sense of self regains its control. But in communication, it starts with a friendly interpersonal connection and then can move, if it hasn't in the brief time you were speaking, uh, perceived tomorrow to see if it doesn't, but it, it can move into a kind of way that we rise to a sort of specialness of our practice. We might mention uh, how long we were sitting or perhaps uh, some of the experiences we might have had during the retreat uh, as a way to sort of separate ourselves out uh, as uh, having had a unique experience. And we can begin to see that the sense of me uh, doesn't naturally abide within that warmth of heart. The expression of warmth of heart is beautiful and interconnected, but it doesn't really satisfy the sense of self. The sense of self needs uh, something to stand on so that its head is just above yours. And so we can begin to watch that unfolding in body, speech, and mind. And now again, not to condemn it, it's, it's just how this thing works. It's magic upon the world. Um, but it's really uh, the basis of the talk tonight because uh, in the West, uh, ordinariness is a very scary word. If you haven't seen that word, the fear of that word, look at it uh, because it holds... Um, a kind of contraction. Nobody really wants to be ordinary. Everybody wants to be living at Lake Wobegon, where you're just above average and a little beautiful than most. Uh, and 
uh, because it goes against a cultural imperative, uh, ordinariness. We want to uh, distinguish ourselves, to stand above the crowd. And average, average feels, ordinary feels average. It feels mundane. It feels a rote, sameness, routine, boring. We have a lot of uh, synonyms for ordinariness. Um, mechanical, too. Undistinguished. I have uh, two wonderful nieces. One of them is a straight-A student, valedictorian of her high school class, and now is in the third year at a very prestigious university, has not made anything but an A. My deepest wish for her is for her to make a B. Because can you imagine a life that has to lift it up to that standard? See, it's not ordinary. And it just it unfolds and, cultiv- and uh, accumulates upon itself so that everything, nothing is, nothing can be ordinary. Nothing can be relaxed with. Nothing can be just an expression of one's own uniqueness. It has to be extraordinary to be unique, to be special. And then I have a second niece who is... Uh, her younger sister, and is very ordinary. Her grades are ordinary. Uh, She is on the verge of not being able to make it through school. Uh, And her deepest wish, every day when she wakes up, because she is reminded, unfortunately, by some of those around her, that she's not her elder sister. And her wish is that she were. Because ordinariness is not acceptable in that particular situation. And we just, we drive ourselves in a kind of way that we can't, there's no life in that. There's no life there. When you really, when we understand the Dharma, we go for the life. We don't go for the extraordinary uh, activities or accomplishments. It's fine if those happen along the way, but when they, are, when they become the basis on which we uh, claim reference for ourselves. We can sometimes see that within certain professions, like I know professors have an extraordinary competitive quality where they're... Uh, sort of feed, you know, uh, and they can't relax, it's, especially if you're untenured and that sort of thing. And just So when we look at why it is that we have such a reaction to the ordinary, uh, we don't have to look far, because uh, if you just look at how we live with our cell phones and our pagers and our Blackberries and our PDAs and our laptop computers. There's a sense of I don't know. There's in calling and phoning and activity and intensity and I don't know. There's a kind of uh, crescendo of life that's lived through that action and intensity. Somebody needs me, you know, and I got, excuse me while I answer this call. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's. <laughs> 
I, um, I, I uh, go to a, a gymnasium, a facility that's part of the University of Washington. And so I'm side by side with a lot of people who are my grandchildren, really. <laughs> <laughs> and I um, and and so beside beside me on one of these elliptical machines will be somebody who's a student, maybe twenty years old, and they'll have um, an iPod plugged into their ears. They'll be watching uh, some kind of movie on the set in front of them. Uh, they'll be reading their textbook and they'll be doing their exercises. And talking to the person. <laughs> and I just, I, I never have gotten up the gumption to ask them if anything sticks in all of that mess. You know, there's, what's, you know is there, and we call it multitasking, but I'm wondering whether anything is really being attentive to, if anything is really, really being seen. Uh, and whether what we're breathing into ourselves is a kind of frenetic energy of staying just, just moving ahead of ourselves, anything, to stay, to keep away from the, uh, the alternative, the pale alternative of our ordinariness. And how, uh, how there's a longing in the heart at times, a deep sense of despair, and loneliness for just that. In fact, I, uh, I think that uh, a few years ago there were a couple of movies that I, th- I thought drove that point home. And one of them was The March of Penguins. I don't know if you saw that. The other one was uh, Wing Migration. And they were absolutely ordinary movies about animal life. Birds flying and penguins walking basically. <laughs> and yet they were uh, some of the t- top grossing films of those years <clears throat> because I think there is a kind of resonance of ordinariness, of just nature, of just, of, it, it realigned us kind of to our plumb line of being. And we um, don't often do that anymore. We don't often do that anymore. When we're out in nature, the one place that could authenticate that plumb line, we do something in nature rather than be with nature. We hike it, we ski it, we, you know, we camp it. It's, we like tread all over it. And then we come back, oh, great, really fine, yeah. Really. But that's not what it was. That's not what it is. It's very interesting. I, I went to a teacher in southern Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa. The three of us were there uh, for, at different, uh, for different lengths of time. So I was there, and I went in, and the, uh, I was asking permission to stay there. And he says, um, and I said, he said, why do you want to stay here? And I said, well, I want to learn from you. He said, I don't really want you here. And then I said, well, then I don't want to learn from you. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but I, uh, so I, I just, um, 
I didn't know really. I said, uh, well, what, how, what did, you know, I'd like to stay here. What, how is it that I'm supposed to be here? And he said, let nature teach you. Let nature teach you. And he was an extraordinary man of that, for that fact, that he really didn't want people to coalesce around him. In fact, he picked some of the poorest areas of Thailand to have his monastery because the food you get was absolutely terrible. And he didn't want anybody coming there for the food, which, believe me, no one did. <laughs> but it was out in the jungle, in the kind of mixed jungle forest, monkeys in the trees and Kimono dragons. And it was interesting. And after a, a while, I kept, uh, you know, I wasn't, I mean, nature, let nature, nature teach me. I didn't really understand what that meant, and it, it sounded good, but it really didn't, uh, I was there to practice. But over time, I, the only thing I could say is that I became um, in myself indistinguishable from the rest of the forest. I didn't feel there anymore doing something. I felt there participating in the life of it. And in order to come to that place, I had to deal rigorously with my ordinary. There's only so long that we can feel the spiritual advantage of what we're doing until it wears itself away, until it um, exposes the true alignment of just being. And one of the chief antagonists in our mind towards being able to come to that level of ordinariness is boredom. Because we, we take boredom as an indication, as it's as a response to being ordinary. And boredom says, this moment isn't worth Seeing, I want to reincarnate in the future. I'll take up my presence after this boredom subsides. And the mind continually interprets the ordinary to be boring. Because there's nothing special there. Especially when we have lived our life, as I've mentioned, with such intensity and with such excitement and with such and ratcheting it up generation after generation so that what was exciting even a few years ago now has a few more decibels to its credit to just to get us to listen to it. And this sense of boredom accompanies each ratcheting up. We can't fall back to the previous level because it's boring. And we have to really take a stand to this boredom. We have to really plant ourselves down with it and just say, come what may, I'm not moving. We have to take a firm resolution 
or it drives us forever into a greater and greater sense of intensity and purpose. What is boredom? You see, when we truly understand the practice, that which seems to define the moment becomes the most interesting thing about the moment. Because in our Dharma hearts, we know the moment cannot be defined. And therefore, anything that tries to define the moment with a particular interpretation, like this is boring, sets our Dharma intention and inquiry. What's going on here? As soon as you say that to boredom, it's no longer boring. Because the only way it can maintain its assumption that the ordinary is not worth seeing is by not seeing it. When we're willing to see it, it's very worth seeing. Which is what we've been doing here for over a week. We haven't been adding anything to you, you know. We've been seeing what you've carried in here already. We've looked at your baseline. And it's from your baseline today that you could speak from a warm heart. It was from that place that warmth emanated. Not from your blackberries and your pagers. And we begin to understand that unless we pay attention to what we have bypassed and culturally defined as not worth paying attention to, the Dharma will just escape us very, very quickly on our way out of here. Excitement holds a kind of enticement. It holds an, uh, not only an um, endorphin high, but it holds something essential for the sense of self. It's, the self is on the move. It's going. And it likes nothing more than that. It likes nothing more than to have that judgment, that condemning judgment to everything it leaves behind, which is your heart. Now, some people seek their way out of ordinariness by drama. We might want to ask ourselves how much drama we have in our lives and is maintained in order to keep us from being bored. It's a legitimate question. Some of us seek it by acting out like a clown or being anti-authoritarian so that we have an edge against what is happening. It's the edge that allows me to know myself. 
I heard on the radio someone who was seeking to escape her ordinariness through a Guinness World Book of Records. This woman was in a room, I think, 10 by 10, and her job to break the Guinness World Book of Records was to stay for 30 days with 3,000 scorpions. <laughs> so she was about halfway through her month-long stay, and there was a, somebody interviewing her. And they said, well, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine, she said. I've only been stung seven times. <laughs> And he says, well, what are you going to get out of this? Well, I'm going to get my name in the Guinness World Book of Records. And be stung probably seven more times. <laughs> I don't know, you know. <laughs> we confuse attention, don't we, for self-worth. You see. We act out from our deprivation. And ordinariness holds a pain of deprivation for us. The craving to be noticed runs along with the fear of being ordinary. It's very sad, but it's, it's as if we're saying, am I worth your attention if I act out? Will you pay attention to me? You feel the pain of that? Please pay attention to me and show me that I'm worth your attention. Then I become validated through you, through my clownish behavior, through my antics, through my drama, through your paying attention to me. See, we need to be seen as being special so that we can hide our imperfections. We want people to look at us. Please see me, but not too closely. That's why I believe that this culture has arrested on appearance. Because then you can only see skin deep or clothing deep. I will get your attention, but it won't go to where I'm in pain. It won't go deep enough to hit my pain. But I can still get your attention. So the first line of drawing our attention is at the level of appearance and beauty, which says, look at my outside, but don't look at my inside. But many of us don't have physical beauty, most of us. And most of us haven't succumbed to the need to wear fancy close. So then the second line of defense against too close of a penetrating observation is personality. So we can have a personality that is charming and is quite pleasant, but that too can be a protection against the fear of intimacy the stare that goes through us. You know, have you ever seen somebody who can see through 
the layers of pretension and we're scared to death as that observation draws close to where we fear we might be seen, which is our pain. It's that fear of intimacy that many of us have the deepest reserve, the deepest aversion towards. Now, it's quite interesting because at the same time there is this need to rise up above the ordinary and be seen, there is a component part that also wants, doesn't want us to stand out too far. We need to conform, to stay within the range of normalcy, even as we try to elevate our position beyond the ordinary. So there's a downward push, even as we try to upward lance, with an upward intention to lance upward. So there are acceptable limits within our strive to be above the ordinary. And if we are too, go too far, we'll be seen as weird, which is not okay. So the, the pressure of conformity holds down our true unique qualities. It holds down joy. It holds down creativity. It holds down spontaneity by the pressures to conform within the expectation. One forces stretches us up, another forces presses us down. So we bind ourselves to the familiar even as we strive to gain advantage. The pain of being ordinary the pain and the fear of being seen as weird, as strange, if I become too out of, too eccentric in my outer ordinariness, other ordinariness. I have a friend who uh, was dyslexic, and he was really dyslexic. And uh, where he had special classes, and he was a very bright man, but uh, very dyslexic when he was a child. And his mother kept saying, he kept saying, oh, mom, I'm weird. I'm just so weird. And his mother would say, weirdness is beautiful, dear. And to this day, it, it, uh, it saved him, really. And he not only um, uh, responded to that, but he really understood that weirdness is beautiful. And to this day, he's one of the strangest, most lovable people you ever want to meet. Because he took, it, he took it, and he moved beyond his pain. But you see, the pain of being ordinary, when we're ordinary, there's just me. I'm just, I don't have any, there's nothing, there's no protection. I used to keep a sign on my desk that says, if I show you who I am and you don't like it, that's all I've got. It's that pain. That's the level of pain. Fear of being ordinary is the fear of others knowing what I'm afraid of knowing in myself. And what am I afraid of knowing in myself? That I'm not worth knowing. 
I don't know how many of you remember Dennis Kucinich. I actually think he's, his hat's in the presidential ring this time. He was, a, he was a, I don't know if he's a congressman from Cleveland, I think, or something like that. He used to be the mayor. Very uh, spiritual man. Anyway, I was reading an article about him, and uh, the, one of the people that was interviewing said, you know, you're, you're seen as kind of a kook. And he says, what other people think of me is none of my business. <laughs> I said, now that's, a, that's, a, that's great. That, that is really great. <laughs> we are all driven to be more than we are because we are afraid of being who we are. But it's none of our business what people think of us. It's none of our business. You see, remember the hermetically sealed. We don't know what people are thinking for the, except we project it out and then try to adjust according to what we perceive the projection means. But the person could have had a bad meal or something, may have nothing to do with us. And we're trying to dance around that person's grimace. And we say, to heck with it, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to live at the expense of my own uniqueness. Now, let me just express something here. We think we're here to have spiritual experiences. Or maybe we have grown sophisticated enough that we realize we're not here to have sophisticate or sophisticated spiritual experiences. We think we're here to be enlightened. May I say we're not here to be enlightened. We are here to express our unique representation in the world of form. And that so happens to be what enlightenment offers us. What the world wants from us is not our enlightened moment, but our moment of uniqueness, original presentation. That's what it wants from us. And that's why we're going through all of this, so that, as Guy mentioned, we can respond appropriately. to turn ourselves over, to have that kind of trust in our inherent nature, to release the fear of what we think would come out if we ever relaxed truly around ourselves, the demons that would fill the room, the animal quality that we fear will escape, the id of our being is not what comes forth. What comes forth is a unique expression, unlike anyone else's. And though some one person may respond in this way, another person equally as aware and awake 
would respond completely different. And both of those are completely authentic and completely perfect. No duplication, no copy. That sense of us, the pain inside of us, where does that take us? Into that small sense of me, that enclosed small me that fears its own shadow, that tries to escape being ordinary because that is what it fears it is. I saw uh, an article on an 11-year-old boy that had a disease called progeria. Progeria is a disease in which you age far beyond your chronological age. So this 11-year-old boy was uh, chronologically equivalent to an 80-year-old man. And he was photographed walking with his classmates. And he's, he was maybe uh, three feet high or a little more. He was bald. He had arthritis, wrinkled. Um, he looked like an old man, except he was in an 11-year-old body. And his classmates towered over him, and they did an interview with him. And he said, he, they said, what would you, do you wish for a cure for this, he says, well, he said, that would be nice, he says, but mostly I would just like to be ordinary. And it showed uh, they have a progeria uh, conference where parents bring their, and there are only like 12 of them in the whole country or something. It's It's a very rare disease, thank goodness. But they showed them all together. And it was like this old age uh it was like a nursing home with 11, 10, 11-year-olds. 11 and they were all just loving each other. I mean, they just, because they were, within their community, they were ordinary. And they could relax there. And there's this beautiful sense of, I guess, of just being able to Relax. So what is, you see, what does it mean to be authentic? What does it mean to be authentic? Are we authentic when we say what's true, what's on our minds? I'm going to tell you how I feel. Is that authentic when your feelings are based upon a conditioned reference? Is that authentic? Or are we most authentic when we're ordinary, when we're a aligned to reality. When the warmth of the heart is the emanation rather than the validation of the person. You see, the whole question of authenticity becomes very relative 
what we thought was so authentic in one moment, when we perceive what that authenticity was based upon, becomes irrelevant in the next. Until we move through the layers, the prefabricated layers, the cultural overlay of our behavior, to the place where we can say, you know, it's none of my business what you think of me. And to say it not as a whitewash, because I'm feeling badly, but because we see it authentically as the truth. In North Carolina, it's a state that I'm, I've spent some time in college. Their state motto is Esse quam vadiri, to be rather than to seem. Oh, I remembered that even years and years ago. To be rather than to seem. To be aligned with reality rather than my thoughts about it. So what is the Dharma and ordinariness? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? We've just spent a week in nature. That's what we've done in each of our natural nature, in our nature. We didn't camp, we didn't hike it, we didn't ski it. We settled in there and lived with it. And you saw how it rearranged itself. You saw what was important and what wasn't. And you may have come to many insights around that importance. They will be lost if we, unless we act upon them. I often suggest to people, write down two or three things that you've seen that your heart knows for certain that you want to live in accordance with and then put that into action because unless those insights are integrated, they will fall back into memory. And what was so important and what was so ordinarily important will be lost in the extraordinary range of our busyness. There will be no contentment until we are content with our ordinariness. You see, it's very funny. The journey ends where we already are. Comes first full circle. That Zen circle, you know, that's the full circle of our being. We think we're out on a spiritual journey into the far reaches of the cosmos, only to come back, only to come back to the body and mind. But we see that until we are the way we are, life cannot be the way it is. And that life needs our unique response, our originality, which is our ordinariness, not different from. We find the ordinary, we find the spiritual within the ordinary. And everything that seems to block it, 
that seems to persuade us that this can't possibly be spiritual. This is what I live with all the time. That's where we dig. That's where we move into. Not the purified realms of the sublime. Those are where we would love to go in our extraordinary searching to keep our head slightly elevated so our self can be validated so that we can in passing, mentioned the depth of our calm or samadhi. But what about the emanation of your heart? Where is that but in the ordinary, in the relationship? in the steadiness and willingness to participate fully in life, in the just residing, the just being. The simple is the sacred. When we rise up to the ordinary, we elevate the ordinary to the extraordinary. Because the ordinary was only perceived as routine and mechanical and habitual through the blanket of boredom. It's like we've been standing on gold and perceiving it as granite. And it requires only enough intentionality from us and the right alignment. We need to know where we're going in this thing. To say, okay, that's enough. I'm not moving anymore. It's none of my business what people think of me. It's here I stand, and it is here that I will make whatever comes. I will look and see for itself. And just to close with a quote from Jim Harrison, who says, we Americans are taught to think big, talk big, act big, love big, admire bigness. But then the essential mystery is in the small. May we all know the ordinary. Thank you. Can we sit for just a minute or two? So as we sit, you see, 
How do we sit with ourselves? Is it good enough just like it is? Is there any contentment beyond this that you hope for? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.